Exodus chapter 13, you belong to me, is the text. Exodus 13. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. If you're physically able to stand, would you stand with us for the reading of God's word? I want to welcome all of you who are watching online as well. God bless you guys. If you're in your living room and in your pajamas right now, uh, repent. <laughs> But you could stand too. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, Exodus 13, 1, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both man and beast. Here's our title. It belongs to me, or you belong to me. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. Skip all the way down to verse 11. Now it shall come about when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every, every firstborn son of my sons I redeem. And so it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries on your forehead. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. You may be seated. Father, we thank you that we can meditate on this title this morning, You Belong to Me. If we are believers, that's what we can say, I belong to God. And I believe that this simple title, this simple proclamation can really be life transforming for all of us when we realize who we are, who it is to whom we belong what our mission is in life, what our purpose is, and even our destiny is all encapsulated in this beautiful, powerful phrase, you belong to me. And I pray that if there are those who are listening to the sound of my voice, whether at this very moment or later on, they would come to the, to the place where they receive you as their Lord and Savior. They would reciprocate or respond to the invitation to come and receive Jesus and be born again to a living hope. Lord, there are many crazy things going on today. It's hard to make sense of a lot that's going on, but one thing we know, if we're a believer, we belong to you. We know where we're headed and we can trust you. So would you give us ears to hear what you would say to us? Would you add and take away from what I've prepared so that you may speak and that your people would hear and we would respond in such a way that gives you glory. In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say, amen. 
the title, You Belong to Me, the opening verse, the Lord speaking to Moses says, sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, the covenant community, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. As I've uh, had the opportunity to be a pastor for several decades now and meet different people along the journey, I met a wonderful man some years ago. I won't speak his name right now, but he was a man who was going through some very difficult trials, probably trials that few of us would know. And they had to do with physical stuff that was really outside of his control. And he found himself in some really dark places for extended periods of time and tried to do everything he could to get treatment for the malady, but it was, it was tough. And he would go through times that were really probably hard for any of us even to relate to. And he was a writer, and so he would write articles, beautiful uh, writer, would write in our newsletters and stuff like that. And one day when he was in the midst of one of his trials, he looked at me and he said, Pastor Michael, what gives me great comfort no matter how dark life gets, how many ups and downs I go through, is this simple reality, I belong to him. And we had studied the book of Exodus together, and he felt like the Lord had really caused him to make that his own, that the Lord was speaking directly to him, you belong to me. I know what you're going through. I know the dark places that you see. I know your struggles. And this is something that you can know, even if you can't make sense of all of it, you belong to me. And I think all of us need to come to grips with that as believers, that we belong to the Lord, that we are his, that nothing will ever separate us from his love. Paul goes through a list of things in Romans 8, and he talks about height and depth and death and life and angels and principalities and powers and anything created. Nothing will ever separate us from that love. But some of you may be wondering this morning, do I really belong to him? And how would I know that I belong to him? And this is Romans chapter 8. It starts around verse 15, 16, and it says this, that we have not a spirit of slavery within ourselves, but a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. See, when we pray, Jesus instructed us to pray, our Father, or you can make it personal, my Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the Bible gives, probably there's more, but at least two primary things that come to mind for me in terms of my identity. One, the word of God says, the moment that you repent and receive Christ, you belong to God. In Romans 8, Paul goes on to say that God gives us an internal testimony about our identity. Here's what it says. His spirit bears witness with my spirit that I belong to God or that I am a child of God. You have an inner testimony. You could say the word of God and the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which is essentially the presence of God in your life is the guarantee of the future redemption. He has sealed you until that day. You, if you're a believer, belong to him. And nothing is going to ever change that. Not height, not depth, not angels, not principalities, etc. But we have a journey. We have something that we are called to do, and that is to walk out this Christian life. 
But the first thing that we need to make sure is that we are his and he is ours. That we can say at the end of a day, I did what I did or I avoided certain things because I belong to him. I am his and he is mine. This is very much the idea of a relational love story. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not to go through just religious uh, you know, things that you do in your life. You show up here, you don't do this, you don't do that. It is about knowing God. And God makes this declaration as the children of Israel are ready to go out. He says to Moses, say, sanctify to me every firstborn. See in your Bibles that word sanctify? That's the Hebrew word kadosh. And here's the simple way to understand the word. It, it is the word for holiness. In the Greek, it's hagiatso, if you're interested. And the word means to set apart for God. One of the uh, great illustrations of this word is found in the Hebrew picture language because holiness means that which comes from the threshing floor. And holiness is separating the wheat from the chaff. And so if you want to be holy, God is going to do a work of separation in your life. He is going to sanctify you to himself and to his kingdom, and he's going to ask you to get the chaff out so that you can be the wheat, if you will. And he will bring the wheat one day into his barn. So it's what comes out of the threshing floor, and that's one of the things that God is doing in your life right now. He's doing a threshing work. And all God's people said, yay, the refiner's fire. Sometimes it's hard, but this is what God is doing. He wants you set apart for him. 1 Peter 3.15 says, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. And then you will be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. And why would they ask you? How would they know that you belong to the Lord? They would see the fruit of the Lord in your life. They would see that you're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. In the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about the idea of the sealing, and here's how the seal worked. In the ancient world, they would heat up wax, and they would put the stamp of the owner on the cargo. That's how they knew who it belonged to. And so if you shipped something in the ancient world, they didn't have UPS, but they had, you know, kind of an ancient way of doing it. They would put cargo on ships, and they would melt wax, and they would be impressed with the stamp of the owner so that his servants on the other side in receiving the cargo would claim what belongs to him. And the impression that we have as believers in our lives is the very impression of Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And people will know if we manifest the fruits of the sealing Holy Spirit, which be things like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, amen? That's how people will know, and they will know by our love, and the first fruit is love. This is how the world is going to be attracted to the gospel. Not that we play a religious game, not that we you know, have a mantra, I don't smoke or chew or go with people who do, but rather that we're known for what we do, which is to reach out with God's love, which is to be authentic about who we are and what we still struggle with as Christians. And he says, sanctify. 
every firstborn, the first offspring, verse 2, of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. Now, in the ancient world, the firstborn had a special position in the family. He was kind of the representative of the family. And a, a modern way to think about it is a captain, for example, of a football team. When he goes to the middle of the field, he represents the rest of the team. If you're a uh, executive in a company and you go to the bargaining table for your company, you can make a decision. You can represent that company and speak for that company. That's the position that the firstborn had in the family. But if you've uh, wrestled with the Bible for any time at all, you know that God didn't always use the firstborn in birth order. He would identify often secondborns as the firstborn because the idea of firstborn ultimately has to do, this is really important, with a magisterial position or a place of authority and honor. When Jesus is called the firstborn of God, it doesn't have to do with being born as in being created. It has to do with his unique position of honor. All supremacy, if you will, belongs to him. And so the firstborn became representative of the rest of the family. So the firstborn from that mama's womb would, would really represent the rest of the family, think with me, in the same way as the first fruits would. So God called his people to give the first fruits of the harvest. And they would take the first of their crops and they would offer it to the Lord. And it represented the rest of the harvest coming in. And so the firstborn in the ancient world represented the whole family. It's not that the secondborn was necessarily lesser in God's eyes. But that was a consecration of the entire family. Every one that would come from that womb was essentially set apart for God. And this is what God said. I want you to give me the first. I want you to give me the best because it will guarantee the rest of the harvest. And this is what Jesus said to us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Don't give me the second. Don't give me you know, your leftovers. You give me your best and I'll take care of the rest. Amen? Huh? You guys out there? Like, uh, sorta, kinda. Now, God did something in the book of Genesis that I want to show to you, and it'll be familiar to, I think, most of you. Genesis 22. Now, before this law was enacted, we have the story of Abraham and Sarah. And, of course, they wanted a child, and they longed for a child, and they waited, and God had made a promise that a progeny, a seed of Abraham, through that seed, he would have offspring like the sand of the sea or the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. And Abraham kept wondering how and time was going by and finally the son of promise arrived when he was 100 and she was 90. So some of you think, ah, I'm getting too old to do stuff. Well, come on. God is the God of miracles. Amen? He can do whatever he wants in your life no matter what your age may be. And so the son of promise came and it came about Genesis 22 that God tested Abraham and said to him, and by the way, God does test us. He said, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, essentially your firstborn, though we know that uh, another son had been born, he was not the son of promise, and they got ahead of God, and we know that story. 
But take your son, your only son, your firstborn, if you will, whom you love, that's Isaac, his name means laughter, and go to the land of Moriah. Most scholars agree that Moriah is the place, the mount where Jesus was crucified. And offer him, that is your son, there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, can you imagine being Abraham, waiting so long, finally you get this son that brings laughter into your life and joy into your life, and now God says, I want you to offer him to me. Now, just to be clear, the Bible never condones human sacrifice. I believe it's in Jeremiah 7.31 where God says to the people of Israel, you did something in offering their sons in the fire to a false god called Molech. You did something, this is in human language now, that didn't even enter into my mind. It was such an abomination to God. And we all know that God is not going to allow Abraham to kill his son. But Abraham is essentially doing what Genesis 13 teaches before there was a Genesis 13. God says, I want you to give me your son because technically he's not your son. He belongs to me. And many of you as parents over your Christian journey have perhaps done something called a baby dedication. And you came up to the platform of a church and you said, we want to dedicate this child to God. And I'm not sure you knew what exactly you were doing. Maybe some of you did. Please, Lord, take this child. <laughs> I get it. I, I get what you're saying. But when you did that, you were essentially saying, Lord, this child that you have given us, we give him or her back to you. By the way, there are some scholars that believe that the the gender language here is neutral. That's a debatable point. But the point is the firstborn represents the rest of the family. So it's all of us. And when you and I as parents and grandparents and even great-grandparents can realize that ultimately our children don't belong to me. See, it would be hard for any of us to be in Abraham's sandals and say, Lord, I'll do it. Now, Abraham obeyed, I think, because he realized that this was the son of promise so that God would raise him from the dead if he needed to. But I think Abraham somehow had in his heart that this miraculous birth was just another affirmation that God was doing a miracle and that Isaac's life was bigger than just Abraham and Isaac. And it was, because from Isaac comes Jacob and then the 12 Sons of Israel, who are the 12 tribes. And from one of those tribes, namely Judah, comes who? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God. And when you and I can realize that perhaps our children, as we give them back to God, we give them back to God because it's bigger than us, we'll be at a better place to realize the bigger picture is what God is most concerned about. Not saying that this... Didn't, wasn't devastating for Abraham because certainly it was and off they went and of course in verse 9 uh, they, they're walking together actually look at verse 7 Isaac begins to smell out uh, a problem he says uh, well there's fire and wood but where is the lamb for the burnt offering and Abraham said God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. Now we know that Abraham's getting ready to 
do what God called him to do, and the Lord stops him. And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. There was a ram caught in the thicket to fulfill the picture of another dying in the place of, in this case, of Isaac. And notice in verse 14, in the mount of the Lord, it was said to this day, Moses actually is writing this later, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Looking all the way forward to the ultimate lamb who would die perhaps on that same spot where Abraham had built an altar. That's how God works. And so there was a, another story that came to mind for me, and it's in 1 Samuel, so go to your right. 1 Samuel, so you got the first five books of Moses, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. So let's turn over there. Chapter 1. So there's a guy named Elkanah, and he has two wives, which is always a mistake. <laughs> and one of them's Hannah, and the other one is Panini. No, it's actually Panina. But she made Paninis. Just kidding. Anyway. And so if you know the story, Hannah is barren. She can't have children. And this is how it unfolds. This is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 5. Hannah Elkanah would give a double portion for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, that's the other wife, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her. Mark your Bible right there. The Bible does talk about being irritated because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, her rival, would provoke her and she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? Everybody write in your margin. Honey, don't answer that question. <laughs> and then Hannah rose eating and drinking in Shiloh. Rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she, Hannah, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow. And she said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me, and not forget thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. You can write in your margin there. That's the Nazarite vow. Now, as Eli the priest watched her, he thought maybe she was drinking or something. What is she doing? What is she mumbling with her mouth? But she was praying. And she did what Exodus 13 essentially says, but this is a rare occasion where this came to fruition in this sense. She said, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. He belongs to you all the days of his life. Now, she is, of course, blessed by the Lord, and she conceives in verse 20. She names the son Samuel. And the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned, probably about two or three years old. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord. Notice your Bible, verse 22, end of the verse, and stay there forever. So the rest of the story is this man, Samuel, who set apart, sanctified unto God, and if you've studied the life of Samuel, you know what he meant to the nation of Israel. He was a great change agent, a great 
man of holiness. He anointed King David. He represented the Lord well. He changed a nation. And I believe that if the church is going to rise up in our day, we've got to see our progeny, that is our children or our spiritual children, as those who we pray will change a nation. Amen? Because the nation, you can clap if you want to, but let it be unto God's glory. Because is our nation indeed in need of changing? Oh my goodness. It is crazy what is going on in our United States of America right now. What is going to be the remedy? It is going to be a godly generation coming up. And there are some here in that age range that give me great hope. Great hope. Because I think they're taking their faith seriously and they want to live sanctified lives. So Hannah gave Samuel back to the Lord and he changed a nation. I want to show you one more. It's in the book of Luke, all the way in the New Testament. So Jesus has obviously been miraculously born. Luke gives some of the uh, early accounts of his life. And just to get to the direct application for us, Jesus is born. He's obviously born to young Jewish parents This is uh, right after the shepherds have been rejoicing. Uh, Luke fast forwards us in Luke 2.21. It says, when eight days were completed before Jesus' circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. So Jesus was both circumcised and baptized. Some of you may wonder why. He did not need to be redeemed. Why even this presenting him to, to the Lord in the temple? It's because he came to fulfill all righteousness which if you walk that out, actually means that he fulfilled what the nation of Israel failed to do, the Messiah would fully do. So he got circumcised on the eighth day, a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. He got baptized by John the Baptist, who was like, I, you need to baptize me. Why am I baptizing you? Let it be so that we may fulfill all righteousness. Now here comes his parents. And Mary had to do something that Leviticus lined out she had to do, go through a purification ceremony according to the law of Moses 22 uh, when her days were completed. And they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now here's Exodus 13. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb, he was the firstborn, of course, of Mary and Joseph, shall be called, what? Holy to the Lord. You can also write down Exodus 28, 36, the high priest actually would wear something that said that, holiness to the Lord, and he wore it as a crown as he ministered before the Lord. And so then they offer the sacrifice, and uh, that sacrifice shows that they're poor. And then Simeon, of course, holds the baby, and he begins to prophesy over who this child actually is. He's a light 32 of revelation to the Gentiles. He's for all people. He's the glory of thy people Israel and so forth. And Mary is told she gets an early prophecy of what's ahead, that her heart is actually gonna be pierced ultimately by what happens as he is pierced for our transgressions. And when he was brought in the temple and Mary and Joseph essentially presented him according to this law and said, Father, 
He belongs to you. Never was it more true than that day in the temple because he was the son of God. And God the Father could say of him, he belongs to me. And the reason that he's here is God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is how he redeems us by the ransom price of the ultimate lamb. Back to Exodus chapter 13. And we are the redeemed of the Lord, sanctified, set apart. Hebrews 12, 23, if you're taking notes, calls the church the firstborn. And we have been born again to a living hope. We have the presence of Almighty God. And each time one is born again, God basically says, he belongs to me. We have an advocate with the Father, 1 John 2, right? Jesus Christ the righteous. And when the enemy or our own flesh is condemning us, Jesus says, Father, he, she belongs to me. He is mine and I am his. Amen? We are betrothed to the Son and we belong to him. Your identity, brothers and sisters, is so huge. You have to know to whom you belong. You don't belong to the world. You don't belong to Egypt. When God uh, gave the early pronouncement in Exodus 4.22, he said, you say to Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn. In Egypt, in the pantheon of false gods and goddesses, what they would do is they would say, that the firstborn of Egypt belonged to the gods, false gods and goddesses of Egypt. And God said, no, they don't. When the Pharaoh attempted to kill the firstborn or the, the Hebrew males in Israel, God says, no, 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 you're not gonna do that. Israel's my firstborn and I'm claiming him for my own. He doesn't belong to you. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. You get in the picture? That's the church. The book of Exodus is a book about salvation. And right now, your identity is that you belong to him. You don't belong to the idols of this world. You don't belong to Egypt, in quotes. You don't belong to the Pharaoh. You don't belong to the taskmasters of your old sin. You belong to him. And I see two reactions to this. One, it's thrilling. I belong to God? Praise God. He loves me. He accepts me. He loved me from the very foundation of the world. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And I see other people going, I belong to nobody. It's my body and I'll do what I want. With whom I want, when I want, how I want. Do you know that funeral directors say that the most popular song in all of America at funerals is Frankie Sinatra's ballad, I did it my way. Backed up by the Italian band in the book of Acts. You guys know about the Italian band in the book of Acts? He's connected. Uh, never mind. Anyway. But they warmed up by eating mostacholis, okay? That's one thing that you can know. Darren, would you do me a favor and check the air and see if it's flowing the way it should? People are fanning themselves. It probably has more to do with the preaching than anything else. It's getting hot in here. Have you, have you guys heard of how selfish choirs and bands can be when they're warming up? What do they do? They go, me, 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 me. It's all about them. It's just, you know, horrible. (laughs) 
Now, here's the thing. I wonder, as a believer, as you sit here right now, how that phrase strikes you. Because we live in a culture where people are saying, oh, no, you don't belong to anybody but yourself. And, you, and, it's, and it's mine, and, and this is what I do, and, this is what, and nobody's going to tell me. And I'm a self-made person, and that's Americana par excellence. Until you read your Bible. And God says, no, you don't. You belong to me. Seek first my kingdom, Jesus said, and my righteousness, and I'll add all the other things that you're trying to make first in your life. You put me first, and I'll take care of the rest. You know, people who put God first are blessed. And I'm not talking about always material blessings. I'm talking about the most important blessings, amen? I'm talking about spiritual blessings and being able to say to your kid, I know who you are, I know why you were made, I know what your mission is, and I know where you're going, and we're going to the promised land. Amen? It's what we gotta do, parents. We cannot make Christianity simply something that we've added to our portfolio. We belong to him. And until we get that right, we're gonna stay stuck. And I'm talking about the evangelical church in America. Oh, how we need to pray, Lord, change our hearts. And so Moses said to the people, remember, this day in which you went out from Egypt, notice what you left. You left a house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, out of the slave house, and nothing leavened should be eaten. I want to give you an application point, because some of you might be saying, well, how do I, how do I live this identity out? It's going to be a process, let me give you two thoughts. One, remember who you are. How do you remember? Stay constant in worship. Keep the word of God in front of your eyes, in front of your heart. Stay in fellowship and stay connected to God and his body. Do you know there's some frightening statistics about people who, and it's not all people, but people who stayed away uh, for a year, year and a half because of COVID. I heard David Jeremiah say at the end of a broadcast the other day, the statistics are saying that many of them are never coming back. They're not coming back. And David Jeremiah warned people listening. He said, don't you do that. You get back to fellowship. You get back because when we come to the Lord's table, which we do here uh, from time to time, we do at least once a month. We do it on Wednesday night as well. Jesus said, remember what do we remember? The new covenant in his blood. We remember who we are. You belong to me. We've got to stay on the positive side doing things that cause us to remember. In Jeremiah, God said, my people have forgotten me. How do we forget God? We get busy, distracted. We put other things in front of him. This is the age-old problem of idols, which are a very contemporary issue. And God says, don't forget me. Do things to remember. Hence, we have these feasts. Hence, they are year to year and they last for a week. Why? So that we will remember God knows how we are. We suffer from spiritual amnesia much of the time. Amen? Here's the other thing. You could call that the positive. Here's the negative. You've got to regularly sweep the leaven out of your life. Now, we studied that already, but it's right here, repeated in the text. Why? Because sweeping out the leaven helps you to stay close to God. It gets the chaff out of your life. Here's application. Remember who you are. Be about God's business, worship, etc. 
and sweep out the leaven regularly out of your life. In 1 Corinthians 6, if you want to just write this down, this is about verses 9 through 20. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. He says, look, some of you used to be this. You used to be engaged. You were in the house of slavery to sexual sin, to this, to that. And he goes through a whole list. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were justified, but you were sanctified. And then a few verses later in chapter 6, 19 and 20, he says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You belong to him. See, this is the message of our identity and our future. Now, there's verses here that we've, uh, we're just going to touch on because it's a reiteration of a feast that we've studied in depth. But I want you to notice just a few things. Verse 4. On this day in the month of Abib, now you have, this is the Passover month. Abib was the original name. It came to be known Nisan as Nisan later, uh, and that was connected to the Babylonian captivity. But you go out in the month of Abib. Now, this is the first time that this is mentioned, the actual calendar month. You are to go forth. And it shall be when the Lord brings you to the land, that's the promised land, of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, the Norkite. No, it doesn't say that. Which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey. That is a picture of a land that will produce plenty. That you shall observe this right in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord, a celebration, joy. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days of the feast. Nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. Now, this anticipates the promised land. And basically, it says, get all the leaven out within your borders. Personal application. Get the leaven out within your borders. Wherever it is that you dwell, wherever it is that you live, get it out. Now, what should have taken probably a couple of weeks, a few weeks, or months, most of the people hearing this would be thinking, oh, we can implement these things next abib, next spring. Did they? Oh, no, no, no. It took them 40 years of what should have taken weeks or months. They were just going from Egypt, the country below Israel, to the north, to go to Israel. It wasn't that long of a journey. But round and round and round they went. And why? Because they weren't sanctified. They had gotten the instruction, but didn't live it out. Here's an example. Some of you have been on this vicious cycle of sin. And you go round and round, and the off-ramp is staring you in the face. But you say, I can't see well at night. It's dark. And <laughs> excuses, right? And you haven't taken the off ramp, and around and around you go. And God says, Take the off ramp. Ah, uh, next time around. Take the off ramp. Ah, uh, next time around. I kind of like the scenery over here. You've got to take the off ramp. And Israel didn't. And they wandered and wandered. And get this this is, this is hard truth. And they were all laid low in the wilderness. They all perished and didn't enter into the promises. Why? Unbelief, unsanctified. 
They wouldn't live out who they actually were, and so they stayed stuck. And God gave them things by which they would remember or through which they would remember. So suppose that your son asks about this leaven thing, and he says, uh, well, why do you guys do this every year? Why do we go to church every Sunday? It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall serve as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Son, daughter, I was a slave to my sin and the Lord brought me out and he saved me. That's why we do what we do. That's why we live the way that we live. Notice in verse nine, these realities will be a sign. The hand is mentioned, the forehead, the mouth. Now, for the Jews, this is, what, this is how this became a reality for them. They took what was essentially metaphors. The hand is what you do. The mouth is what you speak. The head is what you think. And they literalized them, and they made something called phylacteries, which is mentioned in verse 16. And phylacteries are scripture boxes, if you've ever gone to Israel, seen pictures, you'll see people with like a box on their head and it's wrapped almost like a bandana. And you're like, what's the deal with that? Well, inside of that is scripture. And you'll see it on their hand and they, they wrap it on their hand and they have a scripture box there as well. And the scripture, interestingly enough, we'll talk about this at the end, is from the book of Hosea. And it talks about that they're betrothed to God and they repeat it in a prayer. They had the outward sign but Jesus said it this way, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The mind, the forehead, what you think. Turn over to Matthew 23. The hand, what you do. The mouth, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to read a hard sermon, read Jesus' words in Matthew 23. You will forever eliminate from your mind that Jesus was just the mild, meek, gentle one with the lamb around his shoulders. He was mild and meek, yes, but notice what he says here. This is Matthew 23. Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, 23.1 of Matthew. He said, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. That's our author. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them, 23.4. They tie up heavy loads. They lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries. They make them as big as possible. Make that box bigger. Walking around, the box is so big, you're just walking down like this. And you look super spiritual to people. But does that change anything? Most people are turned off by false religion because they don't see it as authentic. Once you've known the real thing, have you ever experienced this? Say you turn on the television and you see a representation of so-called Christianity and you can smell it from a thousand miles away. That's a rat. <laughs> that, people, that, that preacher is ripping off those people. I start talking to the TV like I do when my team is losing. I try to coach them from the other side of the screen. Anybody else do that? What were you thinking? Put him in now. Pull that guy. Come on. 
Dave Roberts cannot hear me when I speak <laughs> to the television. I don't know what's going on, especially lately, but we won't go there. They, they love the place of honor at banquets, six, the chief seats in the synagogues, respectful greetings in the marketplace, and being called by men, rabbi. You can go on and read it, but here's the point. They make these outward signs, but the, the metaphors are about inward realities. You have a helmet of salvation. You have a sword that you take with your hand. You have a belt of truth. You want the truth to come out of your mouth. These are metaphors. They are spiritual principles. Yes, I wear a bracelet that says Joshua 24, 15. I wear another bracelet that my wife gave me. I have a wedding ring on. I have a ring from Israel, translated from, or in Hebrew, but it says I am not ashamed of the gospel. I could put all of this on, but if I'm not acting like a believer, what does it really matter? That's why some of you have taken Christian bumper stickers off of your car. And we say, praise the Lord. We've seen you drive. And it's a scary thing. Even out of the church parking lot. Praise the Lord. Right? Have you ever been somewhere where, let's just say that you were walking in the flesh and you realized you had a Christian t-shirt on? Ever done that before? Oh, nobody wants to admit to that one. But here it is, right? You've got the, the garb on, but you ain't acting like a Christian. You're not thinking like a Christian. And then you realize, oh, I should be representing. Right? The Lord is not so, con so much concerned about our Christian t-shirts or our bumper stickers. What he wants is our hearts. Amen? Because when it starts there, everything else will flow from it. And that's what Jesus confronted. Religious hypocrisy were some of his harshest words. Back to Exodus and we'll finish it. Chapter 13. And so he gave them these tangible reminders, but it was, it was not about wearing phylacteries. A day is coming, brethren, when people will be asked to put a mark either on their hand or their forehead. The mark will be 666. Whether it's a literal mark is up for debate, but I will tell you this. Here's what it represents. The people who take that mark will be essentially saying, I don't belong to him. I belong to him, the beast. And anyone who takes the mark, the Bible says, will be condemned. There's no going back. And the mark is not here today, so don't anybody get nervous but I'll tell you what, we have some precursors going on. We better take note. We got some stuff about control going on that is sobering. And we're going to have to be praying for wisdom from God. But here's the thing. There are going to be a group of people who take the mark either on their hand or their forehead. And they will be saying, I don't belong to him. I belong to the Antichrist. And why is it? Because I want to be able to buy groceries. We, we could certainly understand that. You can't buy or sell without it. But have you noticed how easy people can be controlled? Oh, my goodness. Now, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, be I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. If you've gone through something, have a health issue, have concerns, all of that. But here's what I'm saying. Ultimately, there's a day coming when people are going to basically say, 
I will prefer this mark to that mark because, and they'll do it for pragmatic reasons, but they'll also ultimately worship this false Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. And we just have to pray, oh Lord, help us. And so, year to year at the appointed time, they kept the feast. And when you're sanctified, there's a view to the future. 11, now it shall come about when the Lord brings you to the land to the, of the Canaanite. He swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you. It's a gift. You shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. The first offspring of every beast that you own, the males belong to the Lord. Every first offspring of a donkey. Now, some of you have been waiting for the explanation on this verse. You shall redeem with a lamb. If you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man you sh- among your sons, you shall redeem. Now, a donkey is an unclean pack animal. And so it had to be redeemed with a clean animal, which is a story of redemption. If you don't redeem the unclean with the clean, then the unclean is destroyed. And the point is that without the death of an intercessor or a, uh, a redemption price paid, the unclean has to die. Here's the gospel. Jesus Christ, the clean one, died for the unclean ones, that's us, to bring us to God. The righteous for the unrighteous. This is the gospel. That's why a man follows the donkey in the same verse. And all God's people said, I get it. <laughs> I get the message. Sometimes we're stubborn, kind of like donkeys. Have you ever seen a donkey sit down and decide it will not cooperate with instructions from its master? It's a sad scene. <laughs> no, I'm not gone. And if John the Beloved was here, he does the frog sound, and he would also do the donkey for us, but we know it's not a pretty sound. (laughs) Right? And it's like, no, I'm not going to cooperate. Well, this is what happened. This was a reminder of the redemption price. By the way, if you're wondering, sons were redeemed with a shekel price. In the book of Numbers, it's five shekels, so they were redeemed with silver. It's the silver shekel Uh, temple shekel. And so they were redeemed with money. You bought your son back. You gave him to God and then you bought him back for the privilege of still having him in your house, unlike Samuel, etc. Everybody with me? So you bought him back. Once again, that's the definition of redemption, to buy somebody back. And so every time this happened, it would be a reminder. Why do you do this? Why do you pay the shekel price? Why does the lamb die? And when your son asks you, why do we do this? You shall say to him with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. I was a slave and I was rescued from the slave house. And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go. The Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt. He said, they don't belong to you. They belong to me. Both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, in light of that reality, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. I buy them back. And so it shall serve as a sign on your hand, as phylacteries on your forehead, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now I'm going to just 
tell you a final story. It's in the book of Hosea, if you'd like to turn there, which is towards the back of your Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. So in the Old Testament, prophets were given the uh, honor of prophesying over the nation, maybe warning the nation, making a predictive prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And sometimes they had to act out their prophecies. Ezekiel did it, Jeremiah did it. And there's a prophet named Hosea who was asked to act out his prophecy. And here's basically what God told him. I want you to marry a woman who is going to be unfaithful to you. I want you to step into my world. And Hosea is actually the Hebrew name Yeshua. It's the one who brings us salvation. So the prophet steps into God's world and he pays the dowry, the bride price, and he knows when he goes to the altar to say the vows, she is going to be unfaithful to him. He knows it going in. Can you imagine that being your wedding day? Your first song would be, you're cheating hard. You, you know it's coming, right? And sure enough, she cheats on him and he goes looking for her and she's in a slave market. Somehow she has found herself either sold into slavery or she is being pimped out for sexual favors to men. And there she is in this slave market. And Hosea, the savior figure, the prophet, walks in and he sees her and he has to buy her again. He pays 15 shekels, three times the redemption price that we read about in the book of Numbers, and he buys her back. He, he perhaps has to outbid other people and he buys his wife back a second time. And they have a little dialogue and he says to her, paraphrasing, honey, please don't cheat on me anymore. You can read Hosea 3 later. You belong to me, and I to you. Please don't cheat on me anymore. And the bigger picture is that the redeemed people of God, God says to Hosea, my people keep wandering. I bought them, and I bought them a second time, and I love them. Please don't wander, God might say. You belong to me, and Father, I to you. Lord, thank you for your word. I do believe that this powerful phrase, you belong to me, can settle a lot of things for a lot of us. Identity, security, mission, destiny. It's all here. And thank you that we've been bought with a price, not a price of silver and gold from our aimless conduct, but we were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that when we come to the end of a day or a week, when we've not done something for your honor or done something for your honor, we could say, I belong to you, Lord. Help us to live out that reality, Father. We know how prone we are to wander. We feel it. We're prone to leave the God we love, take our hearts and seal them for your courts above. If you're a believer and you've been wandering, this would be a wonderful time to come back and make that declaration, I belong to you. If you're not a Christian with your head and heart bowed and you've not made this official and maybe you didn't understand this redemption picture, 
Ask the Lord to become your Lord, your Father. Say, Father, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me for wandering to false idols. I want to belong to you. Please save me. Thank you for the redemption price paid at the cross by Jesus, your son. Thank you for his resurrection to defeat death and justify me. Let me be born again into your family. I repent of my sin and I receive you as my Lord, my God, my Savior, my King, my husband. Father, for those who are articulating words in their hearts, you know every heart, all souls belong to you, Ezekiel 18 says. Would you take and seal the ones that have confessed faith in you? Would you bless your people? Would you strengthen those who maybe felt like they couldn't go on one more day? And may that hopeful phrase, you belong to me, cheer us on through the ups and downs, the light and dark stretches of our lives. We love you, and we ask in Jesus' holy name.